but it was in trouble at that point. At that point, we had really strong winds coming in from the south. It was already leaking oil. And at some point on February 4th, it was due east of Tobago. And video came out that, now that we have video, of Gulfstream and whatever its new name is, was sinking. Now, according to maritime law, if a tugboat is tugging a barge, you need to save souls. The barge does not have uh, any people on it because it was de decommissioned back in the early 2010s. The people are on the tug. So protocol states, based on marine law, you cut the barge from the tug, but you immediately call, issue a mayday call. And as Candace mentioned, the North Coast Guard of the Coast Guard, which is the body responsible for receiving those mayday calls, it what no mayday calls were received, which ultimately suggests something nefarious was going on. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Caribbean Climate Calabash podcast. And we're here with journalists from the Trinidad and Tobago. We have Colleen Hossein, we have Candice Chulhan, we have Christian Zakor and Ryan Bachu. Thank you guys again so much for agreeing to be here. Um, I want to kind of start off with, I know the, the island of Trinidad has a uh, has a, a strong history um, in the oil and gas industry. Um, so I know this type, and I know things of this nature have happened before. So I know it's not exactly new, but from your perspective, um, what is the, I guess, precedence of something like this happening? Um, how often, or, or, you know, is this the first in a long time? um and what do you know about it um in terms of the current itself so i guess we could kind of start there um we could start with colleen and then and then go down the line from there yeah um it's a good question so trinidad has been producing oil um and gas since the late 1800s so you know we've had a deep history on trinidad with producing oil and gas. Tobago, on the other hand, mainly tourists, a tourist attraction. There's no hydrocarbon production there. Uh, so when this oil spill happened, um, they were left without the ready resources to respond. Now, Trinidad deals with oil spills quite frequently. Uh, Guardian Media recently published a story with over 800 oil spills occurring in the last decade. Um, uh, of varying magnitudes and Trinidad does have an oil spill contingency plan that was put into place um, since 2013 into 2014. Keep in mind we've been producing oil since the late 1800s we've only got a plan in place for the last decade and earlier this year um, in January that uh, plan was actually revised by the Ministry of National um, Security, Ministry of Energy and Energy Industries, and Ministry of Works and Transport. They are the custodians of this plan, specifically the Ministry of Energy and Energy Industries. 
Um, Trinidad has dealt with oil spills in the past of varying magnitudes quite well. Um, in so far as to say it's cleaned up quite quickly, the lingering environmental impact always stays with the affected communities and affected maritime areas. But the Tobago oil spill is quite a unique one where the oil did not come from one of our um, regular oil sources, meaning it didn't come from a pipeline, it didn't come from a, a boat in um, a territorial waters that came from Trinidad and Tobago, it didn't come from a rig, it came from this unknown source. And as the days continue to go on, we're learning more and more information about this barge that mysteriously washed up on Tobago's shoreline. And why it took so long for officials to even begin this cleanup efforts is that you can't just magically snap your finger and take all of the resources that exist in Trinidad and get it to Tobago immediately. Um, you need to ship it across via cargo vessel, get the personnel across via plane. And that doesn't happen overnight. Now, they tried their best to make it happen overnight. And thankfully, there was some resources in place um, from Woodside Energy and Kaizen Environmental Services in Scarborough to help with the initial cleanup efforts. But this barge was carrying an unknown amount of fuel, uh, well, bunker fuel or refined fuel oil, and continued to leak uncontrolled into the ocean near Tobago. And that oil has since traveled about and stretched across 15 kilometers of Tobago's shoreline on the Windward coastline, moved out of Trinidad and Tobago's territorial waters towards Grenada in their territorial waters, but never made it onshore continued moving westward into uh, Venezuela's territorial waters. And we still don't know exactly if it did end up onshore on the Los Testigos Islands in Venezuela because it's sparsely populated and you don't really get a lot of news out of there. But as of two days ago, the first bit of oil that spilled out of this barge made it to Bonaire's coastline and that killed fish. That was the first notice that um, the oil was uh, there, the fishes started washing up, and then people were in the water, and by the time they came out of the water, oil was washing up on them. And they had to close beaches, and it's causing some significant environmental impacts, not only for Tobago's coastline, but Bonaire's as well. And I'll leave that there, because there's so much more about this oil spill that we just don't know yet, um, and there's so much impact across different countries as it stands. Awesome. Um, I'm going to throw it over to Candice here, um, just to kind of add add some um, some points to what you're saying. I see she she kind of seems like she has some some stuff to say, but also um, maybe touch a bit on the the the, the unknown. Um, you know how how far that investigation is going um, and how far, how big is that element in the story? Okay, hi, and um, hi everybody. I am Candace Jackson and I am based here in Tobago and um, I've been working with Tobago Updates Television for the last couple of years. So, but I've been in media for a while. But um, yeah, so this situation provides a whole lot of unanswered questions. So immediately when this whole thing happened, um, the Wednesday, that's Wednesday, 7th February, I immediately was able to, to get out there to the wreck 
and was actually to see it firsthand myself before um before Coast Guard, before anybody else authority was able to be there because this vessel was actually noticed by the fishermen who then called one of the pilot vessels operators and the pilots said they are the ones that um, assist the major ships like the cruise ships and so on to get into port and so on. Um, so I was able to get out there to, to see what was happening, but um, we were not able from the wreck itself to see anything. Later on that day, they were able to send down a dive team with Mr. Alvin Douglas, who is one of our expert divers here on the island. And he's perhaps like the only person that's able to respond to issues like this. And um, they were able to detect the name Gulfstream on the vessel that very sad evening. And it began the search, you know, what is Gulfstream? Where did it come from? And, and why is it leaking oil on our shores and so on? And um, the investigations continued from there. Eventually we discovered or we were notified from the Ministry of National Security that um, the, the vessel Gulfstream was actually being towed by another tugboat, which is called uh, Solar Creed, and that was from journeying from Panama towards Guyana. Now, we did not, um, we were not able to figure out, you know, who owned the vessel or any, anything like that. All we could see, because when you look online at the ship tracking websites and so on, you're seeing Solar Creed listed as uh, Tanzanian vessels under, under the Tanzanian flag, and which is known worldwide as a flag of convenience. And that is something that we could even get in that conversation that we could get into as to why it makes this situation of tracking down the ownership of the vessel very difficult. Now, early this month, um, this week, sorry, um, we were able to figure out that the Gulfstream vessel, well, first of all, it was brought over by a Panamanian company and somewhere in there, it seems as though it was sold. To, it seems, yeah, I'm using those words uh, carefully. It seems as though it was sold to a company in Guyana, which, um, and, and it has another name, um, because it moved from Gulfstream to Simalin and um i think the name now is coolie boy because there are there is a, an application with the guyanese authorities and that's the guy in uh in in um georgetown um there is a pilot application of course like i explained before pilot vessels are used to uh escort major vessels into port um so there's an application made there for Solo Creed with the accompanying barge named Coolie Boy into Guyana, and it's supposed to be carrying fuel. All that was listed in there um, at the captain of or the master, the first master on, on the form of the, um, the Solo Creed is that of Rogelio Man Manuel. And um, there's no information about the actual company about that it's owned and um who is supposed to be receiving it all we know is that rafik and more that is a broker firm in guyana was facilitating the booking of the pilot services to get the vessel into port um and that's where we are at this point in terms of tracking down the vessel and it's 
it's definitely been a task because nobody has come forth with with um, any information. But it's that that specific name of the badge right now. Um, its last name is said to be Coolie Boy, but that name popped up very early on in our investigations, like actually within the first week. And um, we've kind of been holding that because the, the problem with these things is that the documentation for this is very hard to attain. And like I mentioned, there is this thing called the flag of convenience that allows vessels to sort of go without the need to um, adhere to certain regulations and stuff like that worldwide. And again, that's something we can get onto a little bit later, but um, that's kind of a summary of where we are at this point in time. Okay, amazing. Okay, amazing. And um, Christian, I'm sure you, you have some that, some stuff that you'd like to add to that. Um, I would just throw in the additional question about when things like these happen, um in um i guess scientific terms i guess we could consider it criminal towards the environment but i don't know if there's a legal um precedence for that i don't know if there is any if there are any penalties for things like that people who are held responsible and that kind of thing um so yeah that would be interesting to get your perspective on um and then Kalan wants to add a bit to that afterwards could get to Ryan and then get to get back to Colleen. But yeah, Christian. So ecocide is a real term. It is a movement to try and to try and have a legal bearing on environmental crimes. We have not reached that stage with oil spaces yet. Um, there are multilateral agreements in place to protect environments and people from oil spills. Is one that Trinidad is a signatory to, but it has not been made into law. It's the International Convention on Civil Liability for Oil Pollution Damage, and that's supposed to protect the people and allow them to be able to take action against people who have allowed an oil spill to occur. Again, we are signatory and we have not made that into law, which is a problem because it's an important tool that we could have used and we don't have access to it right now. Just to add to what Christian is saying, and I thought Colleen nailed it, uh, he set the table so well. Uh, in that report that he cited where there were 800 oil spills in Trinidad and Tobago over the last few years, um, that report also cited that not one person was ever held accountable uh, for any oil spill in Trinidad and Tobago. And just to add another interesting perspective I've been thinking about is that you ask about the potential for criminality in this. We're just coming off of the back of seven, eight months ago, a CARICOM crime symposium happened in Port of Spain. The entire Caribbean region uh, came to Port of Spain for a CARICOM crime symposium. What does it have to do with this? It has a lot to do with it because a large part of that conversation that happened at the Hyatt Regency Hotel surrounded how do we protect our maritime borders? This includes it. We have a boat that has been here since uh, the first week of February. Uh, we don't know who the owner is. We are nowhere closer to finding out who it is, uh, who owns it. Uh, we're nowhere closer to finding out, to even getting it uh, plugged. We're no, we've just been so far behind, uh, you know, in, in discovering facts 
about this wreck, about this barge, that we it now poses the question, where are we almost a month, a year rather, later after this CARICOM crime symposium in terms of working together to for, for crises like this, and it is a crisis. I mean, Candice uh, detailed uh, what has been taking place. She is in Tobago. She's been visiting this uh, barge very regularly. It is a crisis. And, and you would think that with Guyana involved, Venezuela to a lesser extent, and now Trinidad and Tobago, Grenada, that we would be able to, uh, to have a lot more information headed towards the end of February. Uh, but it really begs the question, about what is happening at a Caribbean community level uh, with this. And, you know, just yeah, at the Alliance point, you know, when this happened, the first thing we all like was there a distress call, was there a vessel that was in trouble? And immediately, fishermen here in Tobago, they were very well connected with our neighbor. They all inquired, was did anybody know that there was a in stress and there was something happening out there context there were some rough things happening at that point in time Bingo, i think the, the the larger part of the caribbean has been experiencing a period of very very rough seas we've had um several hazardous sea yellow level warning and that sort of thing so the time it happened it made sense for an accident to happen in the water because the last time the Gulf Stream was spotted on satellite imagery by Tanker Tracker and by Bellingcat, who has also been these are international investigative journalists internationally who have been tracking the situation. They were able to spot the vessel capsized on February 6th, right? And this was like about 16 nautical miles away from Tobago. And it's very possible something happened but there were no distress signals made and somehow between february 6th and the morning by 7 20 a.m on february 7th wednesday february 7th the vessel was discovered at cove and it was discovered by fishermen who just went out on a normal day because that's where they catch their their bait to go out on their fishing expeditions and stuff like that and that's that's how the vessel was detected. It was not detected. I have to put in a record. It's not detected. It was not detected by the Coast Guard as the government of Trinidad and Tobago would like it to seem. It was first detected by the fishermen who then called it into um, one of the pilot services who inspected it and then called it into the Coast Guard. We have a problem here in Tobago where there is no Coast Guard vessel stationed. We have Coast Guard officers who basically man their bases because they don't have a vessel to operate out of. And in fact, on that very morning, because I saw the updates coming in and people were posting about this vessel outside of Cove, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And what and then I was, I think I, I had a show that I was posting, and then afterwards I decided to make some inquiries and stuff. And I called, I mean, when you call the Coast Guard, you don't get much answers i called some of my personal friends who are coast guard officers and they can't even tell me anything either because they were just manning their bases in scarborough and in charlottesville um and the problem is that we continue to be without a vessel should have picked up should have picked up that there was something wrong and something coming into our waters 
especially since there was satellite imagery detecting a trail of oil within it. So, you know, it, it, it does leave a major, major question about how we as a Caribbean is protecting our borders. Because when the situation happened and as the days unfold, it, um, the question then came up, what if this happen to another Caribbean nation who did not have the access to resources the way that Tobago has, not having um, a, a very well-developed energy industry where it could pull some resources in the initial stage from? And um, I mean, of course, those are the things that we can unpack because this is a lesson. This is a very crucial lesson, lesson sorry, for the Caribbean. I, I wanted to circle back to a couple things. Uh, so let, let's go back to the timeline before um, the boat actually ended up in Cove, the vessel, the barge. So Bellingcats, uh, Marine Tracker Services, and in fact, the U.S. government tracked this ship. Um, they had a satellite um, tag tagging the ship as it moved along the Southern Caribbean Sea. So early in February, they would have seen it where it left a port in Venezuela. It would have touched base in Aruba and then begin its journey towards, well, in the direction of Trinidad and Tobago and Grenada, that maritime area. Satellite, high resolution satellite imagery then saw that Gulfstream was leaking some sort of oil-like substance in route to Trinidad and Tobago and the all maritime waters. So it was leaking. But it wasn't leaking to the point where it's impacting coastlines because when you have oil leaking into ocean water there's this thing called weathering where essentially the weather whether it's winds rain even ocean waves it disperses it naturally um so it never really makes it to coastlines unless it's in a very thick concentration now, as it moved towards trinidad and tobago sometime on february 4th it was last visually spotted by venezuelan coast guards north of the paria peninsula um, my timeline might be, I think it's when, uh, February 2nd, my bad. There is a part in all maritime borders between Grenada and Trinidad and Tobago where our radar data, radar comes up from a point source and it curves as the earth um, curves as well. So that radar data could only extend so far. So there's a point where our radar data for marine services can only reach and ships can easily pass outside of Trinidad and Tobago's eyes, so to speak, and Grenada's eyes, and they don't need to make a call to the Trinidad and Tobago's authorities, which would be the Coast Guard, to let them know that they're passing through a marine area. That area is actually north of Tobago. So after it was spotted north of the Paria Peninsula, the leading theory is that this tugboat and Gulfstream, and whatever its new name is, moved north of Tobago and it came in to our radar um, capability or radar sensing capability some point on February 4th. That is where that February 4th is. Well north of Charlottesville, well north of the northeastern po point of the island. But it was in trouble at that point. At that point, we had really strong winds coming in from the south. It was already leaking oil. And at some point on February 4th, it was due east of Tobago. And video came out that, now that we have video, of Gulfstream and whatever its new name is, was sinking. Now, according to maritime law, 
if a tugboat is tugging a barge, you need to save souls. The barge does not have uh, any people on it because it was de decommissioned back in the early 2010s. The people are on the tug. So protocol states, based on marine law, you cut the barge from the tug, but you immediately call, issue a mayday call. And as Candace mentioned, the North Coast Guard of the Coast Guard, which is the body responsible for receiving those mayday calls, it what no mayday calls were received, which ultimately suggests something nefarious was going on. Solo Creed, which was the tugboats, cut their losses and run. So now the issue of liability comes up, right? So who is liable for this? The thing and is, just the bottom there, the, the, yeah. the rope is still attached. Huh? That was a exactly. I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Yeah. Attached. Yeah. So the 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 tugboat Solo Creed cut their losses and ran, but a barge can only move where a tug pulls it, and ultimately the liability of anything that happens with that barge lies with the tugboat not the barge the barge could be owned by anybody it could be owned by me or you it could be carrying whatever but if an incident happens with that barge it's the people pulling it you think of it as like a wheelbarrow you're pushing a wheelbarrow and it hits somebody you hit that person with the wheelbarrow the wheelbarrow didn't just get away and hit that person and now the wheelbarrow is at fault you were controlling that wheelbarrow and it's the same thing with the barge so the solo creed and it's the entity that owns solo creed is now the person or the company or the country that the government of trinidad and tobago has to now seek out to either foot the bill for the cleanup efforts and to foot the bill for compensation to fishermen as well. And Bonaire will now have to do the same because they are now being impacted. They are now having to spend expend resources to clean up. And how did the barge end up in Tobago? So the barge, as Candace mentioned, high resolution satellite imagery detected that this barge would have overturned at some point before it landed on Cove shore. Well, Cove on the reef. The barge would have overturned. Satellite imagery actually detected an oil slick approaching Tobago before the oil even reached on shore on February 6th. Keep in mind, the oil didn't reach Tobago shores until February 7th. A fisherman in Tobago reported that there was oil in the water to an assemblyman on February 5th, two days before the oil even reached. But the video that they had at the time showed sargassum, showed debris, and it wasn't very clear that it was oil. So they didn't really take heed to that report. So Tobago actually had two days heads up. If if we had eagle-eyed people at the IMA, the EMA, the Tobago Coast Guard, Trinidad and Tobago Coast Guard, actually looking out for these things. Now, there's also the question of how did this escape radar, in addition to, well, the tugboat and the barge initially moved outside of radar capability. So the barge would have overtaken at some point two days prior to it landing up on the shores of Tobago. When something overturns, it's really just the hull or the bottom of the boat that would be sticking out from water. Radar data cannot decipher whether these things are waves, if it's a whale jumping out of the ocean, because it's so low. And divers support that this barge actually overturned well before it ended up on Cove's Bay, because on day two, when they went down and they realized there's poor visibility and they couldn't actually get into the ship, they decided to follow the trail of debris 
that took them out into the open ocean and it saw where the mass of the ship or the things that stick out at the top of it destroyed the seabed and destroyed Cove Reef coming in. And you saw the trail of debris. The radar data genuinely could not pick up on this overtain barge because it was so low in the water. However, it should have been able to pick up where Solo Creed was last detected in Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago's territorial waters where there was radar coverage. We could spend weeks talking about this, but at the end of the day, it's the people who are affected. And we've spent so long, um, we've spent so long trying to identify the sports and cleaning up behind this, this mysterious mess. The people of Tobago are the ones who are suffering. People of Tobago have to deal with the loss of the natural assets, the loss of um, fishing economy. So back to you, Gladstone. Let, let me just piece together two very quick things that Candice right, and Colleen said that I think are, are quite uh, interesting and important. So Candice would have said, this is a huge learning curve for us. Maybe so. But Colleen also made a very good point that Trinidad in particular has been having these oil spills uh, in mass amounts for, for some time now. Nobody was charged one, nobody was nobody was held to account, but the environmental impact has lingered. That's a key thing that Colleen said that should not be forgotten because I think, uh, and I'm, I'm probably gonna scold our media coverage across Trinidad and Tobago and across the Caribbean now, but we're looking right now, This a lot of the, the coverage has been now, as opposed to talking about what Colleen is talking about, a long-term environmental impact. And just to piece together uh, what Candice was saying and Colleen was saying, I just feel like those 800 plus oil spills that we have had, uh, it, it shows a breakdown in the way that we have managed those oil spills. Because now we have a situation where this is happening in Tobago. The immediate impact is severe. The long-term impact is now unknown, but it's also going to be severe. There's going to be tremendous impact on the fisheries it's going to be tremendous impact on the reefs on the ecosystem on the oceans itself particularly tourism i don't know uh, how much more but i'm sure there's there's a lot more and and i just feel that my point is that i don't think that we have learned enough out of the oil spills that happened before oh, clearly we haven't learned because we really have done uh we really have left a lot to be desired um, and people could agree with me, but disagree with me with this, but I think we've left a lot to be desired with this cove oil spill. And I want to, I actually do want to agree with you, Ryan, because from day one, um, our Chief Secretary, Fadi Augustin, has been stating from the very first press conference when this whole thing, and we realized it was leaking oil and all that sort of thing, I realized that this was bigger than us. He said that we, um, it's a level two di disaster requiring national attention at this point in time, but it can be elevated to a level three. And this was from day one, day one being February 7th. Since February 7th to today, which is February 28th, we are not yet at that point of a tier three. And um, even though we have international people here with us, and yesterday, um, the director of the Tobago Emergency Management Agency, and that's Mr. Alan Stewart, said to us, this looks like a tier three disaster, or response, sorry. Um, it looks like a, a, 
um, it, 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 there's international help on the ground. It walks, it talks, it everything like tier three, but yet for some reason, the government of Trinidad and Tobago is not calling it a tier three. Even though in the eyes of some of our Caribbean neighbors, we are at tier three. And just to put in context what this is, so a tier three requires international attention. It means that as the Tobago House of Assembly, they can call upon whichever authorities internationally or expertise internationally they come in and assistance but for some reason there is a reluctance for some reason the government is seemingly trying to control the international assistance that's coming into tobago because let's be clear tobago does not have that capacity to treat with any sort of a major oil certainly not one that we are currently experiencing and it leaves so much to question but i want to give colleen a chance to get in here <laughs> so. yeah so this oil spill while we would like to applaud the way that the tha and tima has handled aspects of it has not been handled correctly and i don't want to yeah. conflate two different tiers here we have the tier for our national disaster level. This is where we have tier one, where a municipality can handle the impacts of any hazardous events. Think of flooding, think of a tree burning down. Tima can handle, or a landslide, Tima can handle it. Uh, uh, one of our municipalities in Trinidad can handle it. Tier two at a national level is where multiple municipalities are affected and the Ministry of Rural Development and Local Government will step in and start coordinating resources. And the ODPM, as our coordinating body for disaster management, will also step in and lend a hand. Tier three at the national level is where we declare a national emergency, where the Office of Disaster Preparedness and Management handles disaster response for Trinidad and Tobago. And that is where, through the ODPM and their line ministry, the Ministry of National Security, as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, these three bodies coordinate aid and response at an international level. Within the National Oil Spill Contingency Plan, we also have three tiers of response. And these tiers are based on sizes of oil spills. Tier one is a smaller local oil spill where in-house capacity is adequate. So think of um, a barrel of oil spilling on a work site. Great company mm -hmm. can handle that. Tier two is a medium sized spill that can significantly impact the vicinity or an area. And that requires national support for adequate spill response. And that one generally is handled by our oil companies in Trinidad and Tobago coming together to help uh, solve, well, clean up the oil spill. And that essentially is what we had so far. Tier three is a large spill requiring substantial resources from support from international regional um, cooperatives to mitigate the effect to be wide reaching. So regional or international significance. So as we stand right now, at a national level, we are at a tier two for the disaster level. For the oil spill, we are at a tier three. For Tima's perspective, they are disaster. So they are looking at the disaster level at tier two. 
for the Ministry of National for the Ministry of Energy and Energy Industries. We are at tier three. They are looking and getting international companies to come in and handle the problem. This is not something that the THA, the local government ministry in Tobago, handles. They don't call in international response. And this is something that has been misunderstood from day one by government officials, the media, and the public collectively, because it's just been mismanaged. Really and truly, it has been mismanaged. And you have politicians who are not supposed to be on stage leading this cleanup efforts. The cleanup efforts from an oil spill is supposed to be led by technocrats, the people who knows the science behind cleaning up an oil spill and handling it with international best practices. This is why you have the chief technical officer of the Ministry of Energy and Energy Industries in Tobago trying to deal with this from a scientific perspective. We had a tier three oil spill in 2013. And that's where you would have seen, okay, the Minister of Energy would have come out at the time and talk about it, but you have the technocrats handling it. That is not the case with the Tobago oil spill. You have politicians coming on day in, day out, giving press conferences, speaking off the cuff, not saying the right things and misleading, to, to, for a lack of a better word, misleading populations and authorities who now have to go behind after the fact and clean up the mess. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this is this some interesting conversation. I'm definitely what I've found is that um, the 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 conversation too about well accountability for one responsibility those who are um who should be held responsible i know as christian mentioned there isn't there aren't any any real laws to hold people accountable um but i do know that um you know for instance when i spoke to dr balia singh who was a chairman for um for one of the, the oil and gas companies over there um he mentioned that during his time, there was an oil spill um, caused by the company, and you know he made sure, or he he did his best to make sure that whoever was you know responsible lost their job. So I know that there are there are really legal ramifications, but I know um, companies, I know, and and that might be why you know we've gotten to the point where it's difficult to find out who the perpetrators are because someone might be. Be getting fired um um or someone might be be reprimanded in some way do you guys think that might be on the plate well i just want to say is that what this situation did is sort of brought a little highlight into the fact that we in a region are in a pathway of a very of, of a very uh profitable illegal fuel trading industry right between sanctioned countries. And um, I think that's one of the conversations that's sort of missing from this, right? When you track all of these things, the idea of using vessels that are decommissioned to transport the oil and that sort of thing, you know, it's, it's all part of this larger thing that we have no clue who are the real players in this. I think it was Bloomberg News that did some investigations a couple of years ago on what what they were able to find or what they were not able to find was that um, they know that there are major, there are a few, 
few major oil companies that are out there that are at the heart of this. And they are using, in the middle there, they're using a lot of middlemen to transport the oil. And it's done through ship-to-ship -ship transfer, which we believe that this, this whole situation is a part of, right? And tracking those tracking those vessels in itself is a challenge because again, I brought up the idea of the flag of convenience situation in the beginning because since 1950 or there in the 1950s at the UN, this issue of countries having a convenience of flags in a sense that you can you can register a vessel in a specific country. But they don't they don't they are not subject to certain sanctions and that sort of thing that was brought up to the un back then it was agreed upon that we need to ensure that no matter what flag you fly under or sail under sorry that um you would be subject to certain rules and regulations it was agreed upon but never passed at the un and 70 years later we're now in a situation where billions of dollars is traded illegally on our scenes involving sanctioned countries using vessels with questionable flags with flags of convenience and it's a difficult task in trying to trace who the real people are behind this and when it comes to compensation which is honestly at this point a headache for us here in tobago it's it's almost near impossible so it's i don't know if we'll ever get compensation or compensated so yeah, I, I just want to build on that point. I think it's a it's an important point that you make. But I also want to say that uh, we should not be naive to not understand that the politicians throughout CARICOM, not just here in Trinidad and Tobago, but throughout CARICOM, they know this has deep, deep lineage. Uh, this this runs deep. They are aware of that illegal trafficking that you speak of. They're aware that this is a multi-million dollar industry. And it goes back to why, yeah, and, and it goes back to why Colleen was asking, why isn't the chief technical officer out in front of the cameras as opposed to the chief secretary, as opposed to TIMA, as opposed to the Minister uh, of Energy and Energy Industries? Well, they seemingly want to control the narrative of this and, and and it's important that we don't forget this isn't trivial there is a th elections in a matter of months there is a general elections next year in trinidad and tobago tobago is important to all political parties this is an important moment in the wider scope of politics in this country i'll leave it at that oh yeah i mean it does it does get very tricky when uh, you know as candace says it gets bigger than us and i think um that's what happens when when you know get we start to talk about the big box like this with um oil and gas all right um this is very this has been very interesting um i have one question left uh, if christian has anything she wants to add um that would be good um, but my final question is the 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 lasting effects because I know you guys mentioned you know the ability or inability to 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 recover and clean up from these oil spills. But long term, I'm sure there are there are effects um, like you guys mentioned. So maybe we could talk a bit about that. I I can take part of it uh, definitely. So. 
the ship when it at the barge when it eventually landed and it was overturned it ended up on cove reef now cove reef was one of the more pristine reefs of tobago um it was a spawning ground for barracuda and a number of other fish at the time when the ship got stuck on cove reef it was the mast of it got embedded into the reef itself and as the winds were blowing the ship the waves were hitting the ship the mass of the ship started destroying like completely destroying this reef that reef is no more i mean the, the ship is still stuck on it but it certainly is not um the coral that was on there dead the spawning grounds it will take years if not decades to recover um the oil that has made it onto the coastlines of tobago while they are doing a, a decent job of cleaning it up there are some parts, it's the windward coastline of Tobago, so there's lots of rocks, um, large boulders, might I add, that require scaffolding to go in and clean up. And the longer that the oil remains on the shore, the deeper that chemical penetrates and leaves a lasting effect on the coastline. So you're not going to see crabs running on the shoreline the same way it used to be. You're not going to see the same biodiversity that existed. The oil also made its way into a number of ecologically sensitive areas of Tobago. And the impact of that is yet to be assessed. Um, within the Pititru, which is a, another eco-sensitive area, um, it's just past the Magdalena Grand. For those that are familiar with Tobago, that mangrove has already been suffering decline for the last two, three years. Um, as a result of pollution, sea level rise, man-made changes to the ecosystem and this oil spill could be the nail the final nail in its coffin when it comes to the people now in tobago this oil spill led to the all tobago fisher folk president on day one of the spill telling fishermen who fit who boats are on the shores from i believe it was roxborough all the way to the other side of the island to black rock to keep their boats on shore do not take it out to fish because the oil could damage their boats and the fish that are in this area could be compromised and cause people to be ill. Today makes it three weeks since oil has first landed on Tobago shorelines. That is three weeks without an income. And we've done stories on these fishermen over the last three weeks. And some of them make up to $4,000 a day with their catch. How have they been making a living? for the last three weeks. And that's where the issue of compensation comes in. Then we look at the impact on businesses on the coastline. Tobago is an economy that thrives on tourism. Now we've had cruise ships come into the port of Scarborough. You still have visitors flying into the island, but the businesses that exist on the beaches of Lambo, Canoe Bay, in the areas that are most affected by this oil spill, the air quality, even though official air quality monitoring stations and air quality management, um, they have done tests to ensure that you know it's breathable and it's good because there's a lack of people coming to these areas. Some businesses are being forced to close just because there's just no customers coming in. The impact on the people that live there, you've had a number of people in early days of the oil spill claim that the fumes have made them ill. They've had to move away from their um, home temporarily. And then you also have the impact on schools. There are still two secondary schools, uh, or at least two schools. One of them, I believe, is a secondary school. One may be a primary school. Candace can correct me if that's incorrect. Yeah. Um, they, 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 they actually reopened today. 
So right. So you have two schools that were so. Yeah, so two schools have been closed for two, three weeks. You mm -hmm. have SEA exams, which is a major secondary entrance exam that is coming up, and those students have to be displaced from their school to continue schooling at another location. You have the impact now on biodiversity in the waters. How is this oil affecting um, lobsters, crabs that are bottom feeders? How are they affecting the water column, the fish? As this oil traversed all the way to Bonaire, it's now affecting their conch um, spawning ground. It's killed fish, number of parrot fish washing up. Bonaire is also another island in the Caribbean region that is dependent on tourism, and they've had to close a number of beaches over the last three days as this oil continues to wash up on their coastlines. And it's also damaging their coral reefs. The impact of this is yet to be quantified. It's yet to be given in numbers, and it's yet to tell us how many species or animals have died. But the impact has it's far-reaching, and it will be long-lasting. Yes, certainly. And just to support a lot of what Colleen stated, we really do not know at this point in time. Even me being here on the island and being in very close communication with a lot of the, the different players at the lot of the different uh response levels we still don't know quite a lot um but i will say this it's not it's not a complete negative uh, view because in terms of the petrol lagoon now petrol lagoon has been experiencing dieback for a number of years especially with the influx of sagas and seaweed and so on and this seems to be the catalyst as unfortunate as it is, it seems to be the catalyst for where we can repair what has been going on at the Petitural Lagoon and get it back to the vibrancy that it once was. And um, we actually do, I mean, from some communication with IMA technicians and, and um, people on the EMA and so on, they are actually doing quite a lot of work to make sure that um, we can repair some of the damage along with the damage of the oil. And using some of the materials they're using, like they're using a, a, a variety of different methods through protecting the area through the oil booms, through protecting the area through um, the cancel material to soak up some of the oil and stuff like that. Of course, we don't know how long it's going to take. Um, from a lot of the people not on the ground, they, they're saying at least several more months of intense cleanup. But the good news about this all is that it happened in a place where it has the least impact now that is not to say that it doesn't have an impact at all but it has a lesser impact than let's say if the oil had managed to go to buku reef and pigeon point and all the way up the caribbean side of the island what it is affecting um like killian said is, a, is it was a spawning ground for barracuda and stuff i've actually uh dived on that reef before it is a gorgeous reef and we've definitely lost about a quarter of that reef because if you see from the satellite from the drone images and stuff like that, i'm sure that everyone has seen it where there's like a pathway of the vessel just scrape it into the reef um there, there's a very light blue pathway and that's all the corals and stuff like that that the racket that wreck actually um obtained or damaged on its way into its final resting place right um at this point in time actually and uh, i know we're going to get a further update in less than an hour time but what i do know they have a salvaging company here that is attempting to cut open the vessel 
So they did some hydrographic surveys. They did uh, they did have the blueprints from the original owner when it was when it was officially the Gulf Stream vessel um, to a U.S. company. They got those blueprints and so on. And they were able to do some hydrographic surveys. So there is a hydro, um, there, there is a salvaging company here right now who is looking at cutting that wreck and seeing if they can remove it. But yes, there, there continues to be an impact because the fisherman can't fish. What is happening is that even though they've uh, roped up, well, they use the oil booms to sort of contain the oil because remember the oil continues to leak from the wreck. It has not stopped leaking from the wreck. We don't know when it's going to stop, right? And just to put this into perspective, Pearl Harbor continues to leak oil from its own wreckage right and that's 70 years that 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 that's that, that whole situation happened 70 years ago but um the in in terms of the area they've they've boomed it off and so on but there are pockets of oil that are trapped around the different coves because it's a coastline there's a lot of coves of the rocks and as the tide changes it brings the oil ashore so especially in the lambo area they're constantly inundated. It's almost impossible to clean because if you clean, you could clean in five minutes and there's oil back there because the water keeps coming. It's, it keeps getting washed ashore by the water. So that's a challenge that we have on getting, on, on, as Kelly instead, getting to the rocks. It's not so easy. In some places, you can use scaffolding, but there's a lot of places that you cannot use scaffolding. It's not safe at all. Um, and even with divers, even with a whole other team, it, it is very difficult. We're not really going to see our impacts until probably a year or two or three later when we realize that there's a drop in certain types of fish. Lambo is known for getting some of the best red snapper here in Tobago. Like you tell, ask anybody where to get some good red snapper, they will tell you Lambo. And that's because they fish within the area. And um, the spawning ground left to be seen. It really is left to be seen. I know there was a meeting yesterday with the THA, with a lot of the fishermen from both Lambo and Scarborough, because let's not forget, there actually are a lot of fishermen that are based in the Scarborough area that are also very much affected by this. Um, they can't put their boats in the water because if they put the boats in the water, their boats are going to get contaminated by the oil. And we know when oil gets into their engines and stuff like that, it causes rumbums. But um, there is an attempt to work with them. The solution is easy. There are several businesses that are definitely affected. The solutions, again, are not easy. And there's a whole lot of unknown but there is some hope, and the hope is the fact that it happened in a place where it has the least amount of impact on Tobago. And that's why I said that this is a learning situation for the rest of the Caribbean, because let's not fool ourselves. This illegal fuel trading business is happening throughout, and we don't know how far it extends up. We don't know where all vessels pass through because of the the freedom of the economic um free zone and so on and the the ability of ships to pass through different different waters and whatnot this can happen on any different island but we were lucky in the area where it happened we were lucky in the fact that trinidad still has a, a very viable industry that they can lend some bit of assistance even though the assistance was a logistical nightmare and trust me it, when it's probably a logistical nightmare you don't even 
wanted like it, it was it, it really was a task for the the officials to try to figure out but it we escaped the worst but even though we escaped the worst there still is an environmental impact that we need to be concerned about okay yeah i mean this is this was very informative for me it reminds me actually of I mean, and this is Caribbean wide, this 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 um illegal fuel trading. Um, but I do know that when stories get to this level, it requires multiple, it requires all of us, you know, all of us as journalists kind of tapping in um and, and having an interest in 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 finding out these things and, and that kind of and bringing the information to people. So I really appreciate again all you guys um you know stopping by today giving your time and your expertise to this session um hopefully it has enriched others and 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 given more context to the conversation because i've seen it you know being reported on you know even locally here in jamaica but the context for it these these details that you guys have mentioned are you know sort of missing from the conversation so again thank you um thank you to our listeners who have tuned in again for another episode of the caribbean climate calabash podcast and we'll see you next time